Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today I'll be speaking with Mary Jo Barrett, who's a social worker and is the author of Incest, A Multiple Systems Perspective and Treating Complex Trauma, a Relational Blueprint for Collaboration and Change. She's also the executive director and co-founder of the Center for Contextual Change, and in the past has been on the faculties of the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration, the Chicago Center for Family Health, and the Family Institute of Northwestern University. Mary Jo was the director of the Midwest Family Resource and has been working in the field of family violence since 1974. She focuses on the teaching of the collaborative stage model, systemic and feminist treatment of women, adult survivors of sexual abuse and trauma, eating disorders, couples therapy, post-traumatic stress disorder, and compassion fatigue. Let's listen to the interview. Well, hi, Mary Jo. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. How are you? Good, good. So I know of your work, um, uh, I think, gosh, we had run into each other at the AFTA American Family Therapy Academy Conference. And I know um, Jim Kime, a colleague of mine, um, has spoken highly of your work. Um, and we ended up chatting and, uh, you know, actually coordinating for you to go out. My, my mother was uh, living and doing work in Zanzibar and you went out and uh, did some work there and did some training in, uh, with folks in mental health and around uh, child abuse and things like that. And so, um, so yeah, so I reached out because I, I know you're doing some wonderful work and I'd love to hear about, you know, your work and what you've been up to lately. But first, let's start off, and I, I always love to find out about kind of peace folks, you know, kind of uh, career and kind of how they got doing what they're doing, their evolution of their thinking. Yep. So that that's a really good question for me because mine's so uh, straightforward. I think. Yeah. Uh, so it, Keith, I've been in the field for oh, probably well over forty years, and. Uh, What's interesting is just in terms of thinking, I was an undergraduate and it was at Northwestern and it was before mm -hmm. family therapy. And I majored in community psych, mm -hmm. which is not even a big thing that much now. You probably yeah. keep, can't even major in it. I don't know. And so I majored in community psych and my emphasis, kind of a thesis kind of thing, but not really, was on child abuse. Mm -hmm. So I've done nothing else but interpersonal violence since, wow. since I was 21. Mm -hmm. So, and I would say it was by chance, that piece. Mm -hmm. I, of course, nothing's totally by chance, as we know. So, sure. but the other piece that I think was really influential is that I, right out of social work, right out of social work, social work graduate school. So that was 1978. Mm -hmm. And the child abuse law only came into being in 1976 around mm -hmm. that um, I was the first, I worked at the agency that was the first in-home counseling agency for the Department of Children and Family Service on a child abuse and neglect cases. Mm -hmm. So basically in the state of Illinois, basically I was the first in-home counselor wow. for abuse and neglect. Mm -hmm. And, and at some point, I mean, we, I won't tell you the whole story, but if you ever want to listen to my story of my first client, sure. but the, but my very first client was a Chicago cop oh, wow. who was abusive to everybody in his family in some mm -hmm. way. And um, so the, the pieces is, is that I was there sitting in the family, huh. in the home, and kind of having no idea what to do. Mm. You know, I mean, and there was no training, there was no teaching. Yeah. And as Wait time, as, and it became really clear to me that I couldn't just work with the child who was still living at, in the home. Mm -hmm. I couldn't just work with the parents, that I had to do more in terms of the family. Yeah. And so I went back for postgraduate in family therapy because mm -hmm. it's the only thing that made sense to me. And 
what was also really interesting is that when I went back and you're familiar with all the names, I did a lot of training with Carl Whitaker mm-hmm. and, um, and cause he's a Midwest guy. I'm a Midwest gal. Sure. And I, I would go in with talking about these incest cases or child abuse. And he, cause what a wonderful, lovely person he is would yeah. say to me, Hey, I know schizophrenia and family. Mm. And I know systems thinking, but you're, and he literally at one point said to me, which is a good mentor, you're going to have to be the one that figures out systemic thinking for violence in a family. That's your generation, your dad. And uh, which just sort of reminds me that in some ways this podcast, I'm speaking to the next generation like he spoke to me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because which we'll get to later. So that, that's how I came into it. I, Mm -hmm. and I, being a family therapist, one of the ways that I literally taught myself on how to do this one studying family therapy for Uh sure. But also I spent a lot of time asking families, okay, just like we all know as family therapists, you're the expert. Mm Mm-hmm. So teach me. Yeah. What do you, what help me, what do you need as a family where there's violence, where there's Mm -hmm. incest, where there's sexual abuse? And to this day, I'm still saying that to families. That one day I'm really learning from their their knowledge. Right. And even to the point of every session, like what out of this session worked, what didn't, what Mm -hmm. do you need? Where are we going? And because of what I learned, I developed a model called the collaborative change model, mm-hmm. which is a meta model, right? It's okay. not an intervention based. Yeah. It's concept based. And it's about how to, there's two major concepts in the model, which is how to collaborate and integrate your therapist, mm-hmm. not as us doing something to them. Yes. That the hierarchy, <clears throat> the issues of hierarchy and attachment which are paramount in mm-hmm. in therapeutic relationships, those are the same issues in interpersonal violence, sure. right? Yeah. Hierarchy and attachment. Mm-hmm. So the importance is uh, for us as therapists not to be doing something to the client, mm-hmm. that it's collaborative, which abuse is with. not. Yeah. Yeah. Abu- abuse is not. Abuse mm-hmm. is not a collaborative endeavor. Yes, yes. And so what we want in a relationship of hierarchy and attachment is to collaborate. So that's mm-hmm. one essence of the collaborative change model. Mm-hmm. And the other sort of guiding factor is timing. Mm-hmm. I always say to students I'm teaching, you got to look at good therapy, like good comedy, mm-hmm. which is timing is everything. And um, so this meta concept is about timing in sessions. Okay. When do you do what? How do you recognize what's going on in the room? How do you change direction? When do you, how do you collaborate? It's all about stepping back and having an awareness of what's going on Mm -hmm. in the system, in the room at the moment. Mm -hmm. So those are old family therapy, getting enactments, but the difference is, okay, we have an enactment or I'm creating a crisis. Uh How do I time that? Mm. Right? To kind of be most so, successful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are the two pieces of the collaborative change model. And they're the two things I learned by asking thousands of clients, what works? Yeah. What therapy have you done in the past that didn't work? Can you tell me a little more about this timing? Is it is it like kind of like first you kind of want to achieve this and then that or so on? Or is yeah. it a felt sense or like, you know, is it it sounds like a, like like you've got a roadmap of kind of where we are and what we need to do next. The book is called the, the blueprint for, uh, it's uh, the blueprint for collaboration and change. It's okay. literally okay. a blueprint. Great. Okay. And it's based Keith on the natural process for change, mm-hmm. meaning not Mary Jo Barrett's natural, sure. but the universes, yes. like how seasons go, uh-huh. how the trees go, how day and night goes. It's mm. a rhythm of what I call contraction and expansion. Okay. 
So it's, it's a felt sense and it's a cognitive sense. I mean, it kind of reflects the whole body. And so it's a felt sense that in the room is what's happening with me as a therapist, with the client Mm -hmm. and perhaps in our interaction is this moment I need to contract. Mm -hmm. Do we need to, it's basically, do we need to lower the nervous system? Do we need to get regrounded? Do we need to get refocused? Do we need to take time? And then when a felt sense, but also a cognitive sense by me saying, hey, Keith, are you ready to move on? Where are you at? Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Do I have permission to ask this question? Can we go forward? Then it's a challenge, which Mm -hmm. I consider an expansion. So then I push. I do one of the interview intervention I might know from IFS or EMDR or whatever. And then I watch, Mm. see where it landed, Mm -hmm. you know, see where it's at. Do I contract? And so there's a rhythm. Yes. Now, if you have read, and I'm sure all your listeners are completely steeped in neuroscience now, but what's interesting is Bruce Perry, Mm -hmm. who's very involved. I mean, is like, you know, complex trauma and and he's the king um he talks about the brain needing a rhythm Mm -hmm. that that's that the brain needs this rhythm that's why you know music Mm -hmm. walking like emdr is a rhythmic thing and and i i heard him say this after obviously i developed the collaborative change model but Uh then it made sense to me is that this rhythm I'm talking about in session yeah. and over time mm-hmm. is soothing. Yeah. When it sounds like you're really kind of also providing kind of that co-regulation, yeah. like kind of helping to regulate and ground and kind of contain and hold, and then kind of helping the person then kind of go outside of their comfort zone and right. creating some change or creating right. some crisis or enactment or, you know, yep. kind of going into a discomfort and, and potentially even leading to something that might change a paradigm. Yep. Um, exactly. And then the, kind of holding it, that. Exactly. And it could happen 10 times in a session. Uh-huh. And it happens over time. Mm. So it's both, a, it's both a macro and a micro. Yeah. I think the one thing that I want to say that is, is you're absolutely right. You described a perfect, beautiful summary <laughs> consolidation. My, I teach this to my clients. That's mm-hmm. the goals again. Yeah, so when a client first comes in, yeah, I say, so here's the rhythm we're going to go for. Mm-hmm. So when I stop, this is why I'm stopping. When mm-hmm. I pause and I ask you questions, I, I teach them intro to polyvagal. And then I talk about how that's going to happen in a session, how it's also going to happen outside. That's why I like having family members because I teach them together how to Mm co-regulate these concepts. Like I, I'm very, very, very involved in uh, working with people who are gang affiliated on the South Uh side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of going back to my roots. Yeah. I started on the South side of Chicago in violent interpersonal violence. Mm-hmm. But if you came, I mean, that whole program, we could talk about when you want to know about what I'm currently doing. Sure, yeah. But um, if you came to any of our groups or, or what we do, these retreats, mm-hmm. you'd think they were all went to UFC and neuroscience. Wow. They talk brain all the yeah, time. They, got it. they talk about, they call different parts of their brains, different things, uh-huh. but they talk about trauma mind state, mm. how they, they, they talk about this rhythm mm-hmm. because as soon as I've created relationships with them or any of the yeah. other staff, then the next step is this part of really explaining to them the process of change. Yeah. Well, and it's so important when working with someone, I mean, anyone in general, but especially somebody who has experienced complex trauma 
and really kind of being very transparent and collaborative. Yep. And yep. you know, sometimes I, I tell my clients like, hey, you're the captain of the ship, you know, kind of deciding where we go so that there is a feeling, a sense of control and feeling kind of safe and being able to speak up and so on and know what's going on here rather yep. than feeling exactly. like, you know, the therapist is doing something and feeling, you know, in, uh, fear about what is this person doing. And right. so it sounds like you're really kind of communicating that every step along the way and right. letting them into kind of what you know and what you're thinking and so on, yep. and really kind of walking together. Right. The, the, the four major themes or the four major impacts of, of interpersonal violence, which is come to be called complex trauma, although mm -hmm. I still think the majority of what we're talking about that comes into our office is usually violations or neglect. Yeah. And um, is that when that happens over the lifespan, mm -hmm. it leaves a person powerless, out of control, devalued, and mm -hmm. disconnected. Mm -hmm. And our therapy each and every moment, as much as we can, and each and every session should be empowering, mm -hmm. having people feel in control, having people feel valued, and having people feel connected. Yeah. So how you do that, there's lots of variations, and it can be mm -hmm. your own personality and your own model. Yeah. Yet those are, can you look back at any second in a session? I should be able mm -hmm. to look back and say, Oh, Keith, that was real. You just gave, that was great. They were empowered. Mm -hmm. You valued them. It, mm -hmm. It's something that has to be overarching yeah. is, is helping established power control connection mm -hmm. value. Definitely. Now you're, uh, you know, I think for many people, when they would think about working with a child who had experienced incest or working with violence in the home or so on, um, oftentimes people would think like, oh no, you can't do family or couples therapy with that type of situation. You can only do individual work. Um, tell me about your thinking around this. Well, uh, okay. So my thinking is, again, it goes back to timing. There is that when you bring people in the room together and how you bring people in the room together, varies you know mm -hmm. so like domestic violence might be different than incest might be mm -hmm. different i get it's also about living together i mean even if people are still living together what's the the sense of risk mm -hmm. uh, uh, so in what i call the first phase mm -hmm. which is creating a context i mean they're all named yeah. but creating a context for change my uh, my initial is to say is assessment, is safety assessment. Mm -hmm. And so I don't necessarily bring everybody together in the room sure. if, if I assess it's not safe. Mm -hmm. However, I will try to coordinate getting everybody in, in, the, in the process and yep. knowing that there's timing. Mm -hmm. so, so if there's uh, domestic violence, but they're still living together, mm -hmm. then um, I will say we will do couples, mm -hmm. but we're not going to do couples until I get to know both of you and can assess the assessment. So yeah. I don't, so I do couples for domestic violence. Mm -hmm. It's again, when, okay, yes. if it's incest and there's divorce, mm -hmm. um, but the child still sees the father or wants to see them, usually they won't see them, sure. then it's a matter of getting uh, the father in therapy into a, an offender program, work on his denial. But we're all knowing that perhaps in phase two, which I call challenging patterns and expanding realities, mm -hmm. that it will happen. Mm -hmm. So the goal of we will eventually do or be in interaction with each other because yeah. very few families are completely cut off mm -hmm. right yeah and and so that's one thing the other piece is that when a survivor calls me and i the one of my first questions are you married do mm -hmm. you live with someone do you have children mm -hmm. and if they say yes again i introduce the concept I don't know how, when, but yeah. the family will be together. Now, if they're married, 
I will probably ask immediately to see the 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 partner mm-hmm. if they're living together. So it it's again it's about timing. They there will be family sessions, and it's it's in a collaborative effort to when that will happen. And most of the time, that people might the clients want family therapy. They're not reactive when I say it. They know they're in relationships, and they know their relationships are suffering. Yes, that it's it's really a, a societal. And it's our culture, I think, as therapists, mm-hmm. that we look at adult survivors with individual models. Yes. And, but they don't, they don't live alone. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, as you're saying, like listening to the clients and finding out what they need. Uh, we were chatting about this before we got started, that that they the clients are telling you that they want yeah. to do this work or feeling, or you were even mentioning yeah. a client earlier today was was saying, I, I feel like I need to address this with my my parents to really heal. Yeah. And that's four or five years into the therapy, not mm-hmm. just with me with other people, yeah. but they, you know, four or five years, they're saying, okay, now it's I think it's time for my next stage. So to me, when I say timing over timing, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when someone says to me, I'm ready, I need to, to have a conversation with my parents, uh, to me, they're in stage two. Mm. Now, they've been in stage two for other things in their life. They're even, right. they probably have consolidated things. Like right now, this particular client's doing great. Mm-hmm. Has life, sees people makes money, it's totally functioning. So because they've consolidated part of their healing, Mm -hmm. now they're ready to do this next challenge. And uh, I get a lot of those referrals. So I'm not saying that individual is a terrible thing. I think people do a lot of healing. I'm just saying it's not enough. Mm -hmm. So I know you have particular thoughts about the relationship between the therapist and the client and some elements that lead to success in therapy and that are essential. Could you talk a little bit about those, those aspects? Okay. Yeah. So, so what we did, Keith is, and, and it wasn't just me, it's been all over wherever I've taught or anyone that's been trained in CCM, the mm-hmm. collaborative change model is that, we've asked people what was the important ingredients, like what happened in this session that was really helpful. If we're talking at the end of a session, what, what are you, what are you feeling right now? Mm -hmm. Um, And we would ask that periodically, like how is therapy going? Are we meeting your goals? Mm -hmm. Let's look at the goals you first brought up when you first came in. Do you feel like our sessions are meeting it? So, it's this constant, and if you re, you know think about the collaborative change model, yeah. it's a constant consolidation. Mm-hmm. So we consolidate before we create a context. So sure. checking in, where are you at? Okay, and what what we discern were these five that there were five essential ingredients mm-hmm. that had to happen throughout therapy and in every session and throughout the session. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those five things, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the the therapist on self in relation, is that the first thing the client said, which we all know, right, was the relationship with the clinician. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know that there's been tons of research, yeah, tons of articles, mm-hmm. right? But what what we know, what the clients told us in their own world words is that it was the relationship Mm. and the relationship was, it was more than I just liked my therapist or I thought my therapist was smart. It was, they really had a sense that their clinician, their therapist was curious, Mm -hmm. compassionate and empathetic. Mm. Okay. And that they were good human beings. So to me, it was connecting them that they really thought the values of the clinician were good Mm. and that the clinician also 
had a vision of the future, whether that meant a vision of what we're going to do here in therapy, this is how this works, but it was also a vision of how the client mm-hmm. was going to be, right? Yeah. And the other thing they said, which is, was necessary, it, and this is what they said, which is the argument for systems, is that they, they found the sessions with their family members in the room, mm-hmm. some of the most essential. Mm. whether it was an adult survivor who said that session with my mother or the adult survivor I saw just yesterday who had a a session with her brother who had sexually abused her. Mm -hmm. She only had three sessions, but she said those were the, some of the most essential working on marriages, working on parenting. um, You know, like the couple I saw earlier came in with a huge fight. And it was obviously, as you and I know, around how they can parent better together, right? So, and this was somebody who had only had individual therapy um, for their dysregulation. Mm -hmm. So what, so that's the first piece is that the work, the attachment with the therapist, but also their relationships in their lives where there was more empathy and compassion and curiosity created. Great. Yeah, do you want to ask about that? Well, I was going to say, you know, I'm. Uh, you were mentioning earlier about the uh, Scott Miller work and the feedback-informed treatment, and I, I, the way I think about it, oftentimes it's it's about attunement, also about kind of attuning to our clients, asking for feedback directly, and noticing, you know, what they're we're getting kind of non-verbally and so on throughout the sessions to maintain that connection and and being kind of moving together rather than getting ahead of our clients or pulling them along or pushing or so on. Yeah. And if I don't, if I don't address those exact words in a minute, remind me about okay. it. Okay. The second thing that the clients told us was about safety and empowerment. And again, we all know this about trauma, but what does that mean in their words? Yeah. Is that they had to feel safe in the relationship. And the relationship with the clinician was they had to have clear boundaries. Mm-hmm. It had to be predictable. They had to understand the process. Mm-hmm. Like, why is, why is this? Why are we doing this now? How does therapy work? And they they had to recognize that that the clinician was going to help them feel safe in their relationships with their family, not just in the room again. Right. Um, like yesterday. I was, or the other day I was seeing a client who was, the kid was saying to me, I don't feel safe. And what they were talking about is how their parents were handling COVID. Mm. And that word that the importance in the session became, how can we help you feel safe at home? So that whole thing, and and the empowerment comes by, again, asking the clients, right? Mm -hmm. Getting informed of what the clients need. That's empowerment. Um, The third thing the client said is they had to feel valued. Mm -hmm. They had had that, again, it's a conscious effort on the therapist. Is the client feeling valued Mm -hmm. with how I'm treating them? Am I saying things? That are again, as we as family therapists know, are strength-based. Sure. Am I am I really utilizing their resources and their their strengths in how I'm designing the therapy? Am I commenting on their their strengths? Am I am, can I look at myself and say how how do I value this client? Mm-hmm. You know, I think I don't know. I think I told you about my first client, the police officer. Maybe I didn't, but when I interviewed the mom 40 years later, the, the mm-hmm. father who had been the, uh, the, the victim, I mean, the father who had been the abuser had died. And I interviewed them 40 years after I had first seen them. They were my first client. It was pretty remarkable. And the mom, when I said to her, do you remember that session when I made the home visit and everybody was throwing glass at each other when I walked in and she said, yes. And I said, that was, that was huge in my career. How do you remember it? And she said, 
I remember that session as you were the first person who ever had faith in me. Mm. And I was a 24-year-old, 25-year-old social worker that had no clue what I was doing and walked in when people were literally throwing glasses at each other. Mm. And somehow whatever I did made her feel, and that she remembered 40 years. Wow, that's great. So that's, again, that sense of feeling valued. Yeah. Well, I think, too, that oftentimes, you know, when the client experiences the therapist as seeing the person in them that they want to be or that they are becoming or they're they're kind of um, the the part of them that they really appreciate rather than just their problem, that oftentimes feeling that connection and and more of that hope. Um, I think, too, that this aspect of valued um, uh, Jim Kine, my colleague, we we, uh, teach family therapy at times. And he's talked about, you know, that how important it is to have empathy and value for your clients and that he always recommends working with sex offenders because he says it will really challenge your, you know, ability to, to be empathic and, you know, to really find something that's likable and valuable in your client, even though that maybe they engaged in these, yeah. um, you know, horrific acts. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, I this is the work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, that's you know, because I work with a lot of offenders. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about, and, and when I, it is about finding something you value. Mm-hmm. I mean, and sometimes if I can't, then I have to figure out how do I help them find somebody that can value them. Although mm-hmm. when I very consciously say, this is what I'm doing right now is to mm-hmm. look really hard at what I can value about them. And that's where my questions are. I usually find something. Yeah. But they, but the client said they needed to feel valued. Mm -hmm. So the fourth thing they said was skills, literally the psychoeducation. So all those Mm -hmm. things, even though I can say, let's not be intervention oriented, let's be more uh, meta oriented. They did need or they did need skills, right? Yep. And they said that learning how to meditate, learning good communication, learning self-regulation. Um, and again, going back to the systems piece, is that they said if everybody was learning the same mindfulness, it was helpful. Then if I learned how to regulate and went home to a dysregulated yes. family. So again, I have all sorts of handouts where I try to teach people mm-hmm. about the polyvagal, about, you know, they're very understandable worksheets. And it's important for everybody in the family to know. Great. So, and the last thing is what they said was hope. And mm-hmm. that was that the clinician really did believe One, that what they're doing was going to be helpful and could work. Mm -hmm. And two, that that they had hope Mm -hmm. and that they instilled hope in the process and in the clients. And one of the things that I go for at the end of a session is how are you feeling right now? And I'm looking for those words of this was helpful. Mm -hmm. This was hopeful. Um, this made sense to me, Mm -hmm. excuse me, this made sense to me. I'm looking for words of regulation, you know, social engagement. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And And what I'm saying about, I believe these ingredients are, is that we need to be conscious of them. They should be a checklist. Mm-hmm. I should be able to walk into any session, any clinician, and take that snapshot of that moment and see in that relationship at least one, two, or three in that moment of yeah. these of these happening in one way or another. Yeah, because otherwise, otherwise, all the processes or techniques or stages or so on are are you know not going to do much if you don't right. have that relationship. Right. And then you end up kind of, you know, have the therapist pulling along the, the client or pushing them along or so on and getting frustrated um, and, and getting into kind of um, uh, and, and seeing them as, quote unquote, resistant. 
Right, exactly, exactly. Now, which then goes on to the next piece, is that all of us need these five essential ingredients mm. in our lives to stay what I call ethically attuned. I, I think it's an ethical imperative for therapists to be fit. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say fit, that, that it means how are these five things happening in my life? Do I feel valued in my own life? If, do I practice my skills or no skills? Do I feel, what is my, who am I attached with? What's my social engagement? Do I have friends? How am I, what's my spiritual essence? And so to me, in order to do these five ingredients or integrate them into the treatment, we, we have to be also ethically attuned ourselves, which means I, I believe we all exist in six areas of, of energy domains, meaning emotionally, intellectually, physically, sensually, and spiritually, and socially. Mm-hmm. So those six areas and how in those six areas of all human energy domains, meaning how we build energy, how we produce energy, how we give energy, how, what are my attachments, my social engagement, my safety, where do I feel empowered, valued, what skills do I have in all six areas? And, and that means in all six areas, I have to be able to replenish myself and find balance that we cannot give those things to our clients that we have to ourselves. And the way I discovered this, Keith, is about uh, 30 years ago, which means I'd only been in the field for like 10 10 years, 10 or 12 years, I was truly suffering. Um, I was sick all the time. I had pneumonia. I was literally losing my hair. I was miserably married, miserably parenting. I was a wreck. And of course, I never told anybody because you don't do that in our field. And it was the exact same time I started collecting this qualitative data And what I went, and so when I started hearing this from clients, I began to realize I could not give them those ingredients, that I couldn't do what it took. Okay. I didn't have what it would take. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started realizing in order to give safety, value, power, skills that I had to be in, in, in fit, <laughs> fit socially, emotionally, spiritually. I had to be in a fit state. I had to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like kind of heal thyself, like kind of yep. 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 bring it into yep. the work that you're doing with your clients. Yeah. Yeah. So, Great. so that, that's the, you know, that's the, the concept that, that, you know, in terms of our conversations, mm-hmm. you know, that to me, the essential concepts are this constant rhythm mm-hmm. of, of working with our clients, the constant, where are you at? How are you feeling? What do you need at this moment in time? What do you need over time? Mm-hmm. Creating that context, then challenging by teaching new skills by enactments challenging what's going on mm-hmm. then consolidating that shift that change that discomfort that dysregulation to re-regulate so this constant constant cycle um with being able in those different phases to make sure that the five essential ingredients are present right which means I have to be in really good shape. Yeah, yeah. Doing all that. Yeah, it's so important because you know we are we are the tool of of therapy and needing to to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and being able to be there so that we can give to our clients. Um, so important. Yeah. So that's one piece. 
I think the other part, which is just a whole nother, and I just got done literally writing with the, one of the great editors, Lauren of the networker, mm. uh, an article about when you've cut off from your family and then as life progresses, you want to reconnect. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you watched the, sh the shrink next door. Oh no, I don't know that one. What? Are you kidding me? Yeah, no. That's impossible. Yet. You might want to cut that out because it makes you look like such you're out of the pocket. <laughs> I'm out of, out of the loop. But the Shrink Next Door is, was a, a great podcast. And uh -huh. for you, you're a podcaster. So I'd lis listen to it before you see the TV show. Yeah. But it's a, a, lot, a real crime, meaning mm. it was a crime, but not a murder. But it was about yeah. a shrink who literally orchestrated his client. True, total true story, real names. Wow because it was a New York Times, I think New York Times journalist, uh -huh. to cut off from his family, everything. Oh, wow. And then, I mean, and then it was very abusive, mm. what he did, um, mostly financially. Yeah. But the point is, 27 years later, mm -hmm. the guy, who's played by Will Ferrell, but oh, wow. is a real person, uh, reconnected with his sister. Oh, interesting. So the reason I bring that up is that's a whole nother leg of family therapy that I'm really steeping myself in deep mm -hmm. now. I started it in 1994 called the Family Dialogue Project. Uh -huh. And uh, now it's becoming really more people. People are saying, I don't, I, I don't want to be cut off. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't want a relationship with the person that abused me or with my QAnon parents, mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to be cut off. Yeah. So how, as a clinician, do we help them navigate a safe and healthy relationship? Mm -hmm. And um, and again, so many therapists say, who aren't systemic thinkers, mm -hmm. uh, you should be cut off. These are terrible, evil people. And yeah, family... Family dynamics, as you well know, are a little more complicated, mm -hmm. a little yeah. more nuanced. Well, I think this is another good point because, again, I think a lot of people, even when they think of family therapy, they don't necessarily think of family therapy with adult children and their right. family members. Right. They think of children, teens, and then once the kid's 18, then family therapy is no longer a thing. But definitely, you know, doing that work and, and reconnecting. And yeah, I I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this because, you know, that, you know, oftentimes sometimes with the clients that I work with, it's, you know, I'm just thinking about what, you know, oftentimes the, the well is dry. They can't get much from that parent. And, you know, oftentimes they, you know, the parent may still be acting in ways that are feeling abusive or hurtful or dismissive or so on. And, you know, so, so sometimes kind of, helping my clients look at how do they get part of what they might need also knowing that their their parent may have some limitations absolutely how do you think about that with with the adults that you're working with with ha wanting to have that connection but at the same time their their parent maybe not being safe still or being yeah. sick still or struggling or not i i think um i really in the, in the family dialogue process. Again, it's a very clear process. Sure. So in phase one, which is creating a context, if the person calls me, if they're in, I investigate basically, mm -hmm. are you in therapy? Where stage of therapy? Can I talk to your therapist? Yeah. What's blah, 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 blah. What are your goals? I want my children to meet my parents mm -hmm. or I want my children to meet my sibling, uh, my, their cousins, or I don't want the first time I see my brother to be at my parents' funeral or whatever. I mean, sure. I want to have what 20 minutes of a Christmas. I, I mean, who knows? Yeah. There usually is some concrete goal. Mm -hmm. And so my feeling is that you, you really create the context and really see if this is possible. So for example, Keith, if somebody says, I want my father to admit he sexually abused me. Mm -hmm. That's then I say, you got to do a little more work with your therapist. Yeah. Right. And I'll talk to the therapist. Mm -hmm. If they say, 
I want my kids to meet my parents, that's a very attainable goal. Sure. So the family dialogue for adults is let's look at what their goal is and their motivation. Mm-hmm. So the purpose of the family dialogue is for them on a, again, it's that goes back to, to feel empowered, mm-hmm. to feel in control of some of the interactions yeah, and to feel, you know, valued. And so it's not um, the purpose of, healing their wounds Mm -hmm. except in a different way yeah come back differently Mm -hmm. so so like what i was just talking to this last client was it's not to come back to have the parents say yes i sexually abused you it's to come back and say i don't really care if you say you did or not i know the truth i don't need your validation sure i just need to know do you, are, do you have any, do you have any, do you want to see me once a year? Sure. And if you do, here's the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've had some really concrete, one of my favorites that always pops into my head is there was a mother who used to constantly send the child. Uh, I don't know what they are because I'm Jewish, but these prayer cards. Huh? that would talk about forgiveness. You must forgive your father mm. for what you believe, blah, blah, blah. And the kid basically said, you've got to stop mailing them to me. Yeah. And, and if you write me letters, this was years ago. Sure, sure, sure. Literally years ago. Uh, if you write me letters, I want you to write on the back, there is no prayer card here. Mm. And that was an agreement and the mother signed it. Great. And, you know, and then when we're done, we're, and if you break the agreement, here's what I'm going to do. So I want to come home for Thanksgiving. How long can you not drink? Mm -hmm. Okay. You have to drink by three, then I'll come and I'll leave. And when you drink, I'll leave. That's okay. Or I won't stay at the house. I'll be in a hotel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, really concrete. Mm -hmm agreements about this is the only way I can be in this family. Yeah, this is what I need. Yeah, I was just thinking too, like I'm working with one client who, you know, um, was very hypervigilant, of course, trying to manage everybody in the family, you know, kind of in a codependent nature. And so as she's been working through her trauma, she's she's been stopping doing that and realizing that that's not something or her responsibility or so on. But then it has also taken, you know, her next step was then it was taking a focus on, well, I'm going to set limits with them or so on. And, but with the focus on the parents saying, yes, apologizing or doing differently or so on, rather than, again, I think focusing on oneself rather than the other focus of this is what I need. If they're not following those expectations, I need to remove myself, but of course, communicating what I need or what's wrong. And then at least the ball's in their court. They can- exactly, exactly. And that's not what often cutoffs are about, you yeah. know, like a therapist often will encourage, and I'm not just saying it's only therapists, like block them. Well, yeah. without telling them that they're blocked. Yeah. Or even saying, this is why I'm doing this or, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. Because at least if they tell, this is what I need, this is why I'm doing this then it gives the parent a chance and the parent may still just not do anything differently, but at least God forbid the parent dies or something. The adult feels like, well, I did the part on my side of the street and I did as much as I could do. I have no control of the other side, but at least I gave a chance. Um, Good, good. Well, so tell me about, um, Gosh, there's so much I want to uh, hear about, but I want to hear about the gang work. I want to hear about, I know you're, you're uh, writing a new book right now. Um, yeah, wherever you want to go in. Well, I think, you know, the what's most close to my heart right now is working with the families of, of marginalized, impoverished, and then choosing to affiliate with gang families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then violence then in their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that, I mean, it really, I think like so many of us, it really started literally um, my involvement three weeks after the 16 election. Uh, um, 
I, I really, you know, as a child of Vietnam and Mm -hmm. all that, I really went downhill Mm. and, uh, I'm not sure I've come up the hill yet, but, Mm. uh, and I very, uh, very magically found was called by someone who was starting a program Mm -hmm. for gang members and their families Mm. and said, I know we need a more of a trauma lens. Yeah. And would you be willing? And I mean, the, the, the universal gift part is they called my cell and I never answered my cell to an unknown number. Mm -hmm. Sure. And uh, literally, I think it was four days after the election and I answered the phone. Mm-hmm. So ever since then, they said, would you be willing to teach us, talk to us, look at the program? And when I met the the, the visionary, who's a yeah. gang member, uh-huh. um, I really recognized this is what I wanted to do mm-hmm. with my life is to bring trauma informed, but systemically. Yes. So looking at systemic racism, interpersonal mm-hmm. violence, uh, historical trauma, mm-hmm. post-traumatic slavery, integrate all and family, yes. all of that into this process. Oh, and the process I didn't think of, although mm-hmm. uh, again, years and years and years ago, when I first started working with incest perpetrators Mm -hmm. and people would say to me, Oh my God, how can you work with them? And, and they'd say they should all be in jail. And I said, well, really quite the contrary. Mm -hmm. And this is a little obnoxious, but what I would say is no, they really need to be at offender camp Mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be in jail. It's a poor use of our money. We should have a place out in wilderness and, and, that was again even before all these wilderness programs sure. for rich adolescents. Yeah, that that it is that concept of being mm-hmm. in nature mm-hmm. and building community. Yeah, and so this this man whose name is Ra Fry uh, had had that experience himself. Mm-hmm. He's in his fifties now, but as a young yeah. adolescent, had been taken out of the South Side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And he brought this concept back, but had no idea how to really organize it. And so that's what we do. So we take gang affiliated people and their children and their, they're either their women that they have their children with or their girlfriends. And we go out into nature for Uh three days, four days, five days and run an entire program that is based on the collaborative change model. Yeah. Wow, I mean, completely. Great. So it is involving all sorts of regulation, neuroscience, where we eat uh-huh. healthy, which doesn't happen in the sure. food desert of the South Side. We exercise. We mm-hmm. teach them to meditate. Wow. We have trauma groups. We have psychoeducation groups. Uh-huh. Um, we run peace circles. Wow. And do art, creative arts, where they make rap and songs and and word, spoken word. So they're these days of regulation. And then, of course, we observe them dysregulated all throughout. Sure. Even the first time going out and seeing a squirrel freaks people out. Sure. They've never been in nature. Yeah. A lot of these family members. What's this program called? (laughs) It's called Pride Rock. Pride Rock. That's great. Yeah, yeah it sounds incredible. So it's it's so here I am, this old white Jewish woman going out into the wilderness mm-hmm. with the uh, gang affiliated people, mm-hmm. and uh, probably some of the most rewarding work I've ever done. Wow. And 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 the work is no different, except perhaps more rewarding than working oh. with, you know, upper middle-class white folks, which in fact, I think a lot of the models out there have been designed Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. individual private practices. Mm -hmm. Now, particularly too with these uh, uh, folks that are involved with gangs, 
Um, what is that like for, for them or for the clients that you've worked with that have gone through this process understanding trauma more? Because, you know, I know, I don't know a lot about, you know, gangs in particular, I know very little, but, you know, I know that it's, it's so integrated in a part of life and oftentimes hard to extricate. And yeah, there's like you're saying about issues around uh, race and around poverty and, and so on. Um, what does that look like for folks when they come back from a, a program like this? Well, so one of the concepts is that we go out for three days, we come back, we mm. go out again, it follows the rhythm of the model. Yeah. And when they're back, we've really created a system in the city where it's there's clubhouses, there's uh, mentors, mm. like we call them life coaches. Yeah. So they have a lot of contact mm-hmm. with and build community. I mean, that's what people get from gangs. Yes. Yeah. They get affiliation, they get family, they feel empowered, they feel mm-hmm. valued, yeah. all the core things about trauma. And so we're trying to create a community. Mm-hmm. And because it's fellow, excuse me, gang members, uh-huh. they're they're having the community with the same people. Mm-hmm. And they're just making different choices. Now, this is over time. I mean, we've been doing it for, you know, four years. Mm-hmm. And we have a many, a huge amount of the original men and families that went out with us. Yeah. We're constantly bringing in new people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we've had no one, knock on wood, shot, yeah. have gun violations. Um, you know, they just have have experienced regulation mm-hmm. and get with our support. I mean, so it's yeah. a constant, a lot of connection and contact. Wow. The other thing that we're doing is trying to train other partners. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of the big things with gangs is jobs. Yes. Get these people jobs. Sure. Then but these, but these men, one, make more money without jobs, mm-hmm. <laughs> but two, on top of it, then they're treated in ways that are very triggering to their trauma when mm. they go to work. When they do get a job. Yeah. So even these programs that get them jobs, you know, they fire them within days because they show up on time versus set up a system of how do I come get you? How do I, you know, and then they might say, well, we're not in the business of babysitting. Well, how is somebody who's had generations of never having see how to be a job? Where does someone learn how to be responsible and go to work? Right. And, and if you really want to be, look at post-traumatic slavery, that a, a person with, that was a slave never had agency. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, so what we're trying to do with partnerships is say, in order to make your non-for-profit successful, you have to be trauma-informed in a certain way. Yeah. Well, I think too, I imagine that also just any kind of hierarchy that has been experienced has often been, ex- been oppressive. Yes, uh, totally, the, 100%. The school systems, the police, and so on. Yep. So then going into a job and having a boss or a manager so on is going to be, I imagine, very triggering if if most of your experiences have been uh, oppression and discrimination and um, and like you're saying of of not having power. Right. Absolutely. And so it is. It it goes back to hierarchy and attachment. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, that's. Yeah. So that's the piece that that we have to look at. And one of the things that is my goal fantasy mm-hmm. is that we take cops on passages. That's what we call mm-hmm. what we go out yeah. because that's a they're traumatized. It'd be so and, interesting. I actually one of the folks that I interviewed was uh, Joel Fay, who is a, a local psychologist here who was a police officer. 
and is uh, was police officer and psychologist. And they actually have what's called the West Coast Trauma Retreat, where uh, first responders, police officers, fire, and so on, go for intensive trauma treatment. That'd be so interesting to kind of. Oh, that, that would be that great. Maybe you piece. can. Yeah, I should connect the maybe two. Maybe you can you. connect Definitely. them. That'd be wonderful. That be, yeah, that would be great. So before we run out of time, I want to hear about your the book you're working on. Well, the the you know as you know, I think that part of it, which is a whole other piece about when therapists grow old, right, mm. is the concept of legacy, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And and I I'll, I don't think I'll ever retire, mm-hmm. but but I really there's this void in the trauma world of teaching and talking about how to do family therapy Mm -hmm. and the role of family therapy. I think I always call it the missing piece. Yeah. I I think it's literally the missing element of really successful trauma treatment. Well, especially too, there's all these evidence-based treatments, you know, and we're finally getting some family therapy models for treating depression. You know, there's lots of models for treating, you know, behavioral issues or, you know, substance abuse or so on. But some of these issues like more internalizing, you know, trauma, anxiety, right. and so on, there's there's not as many models. So everybody defers to CBT or trauma-focused CBT or, or so on. Right. And so the book is really family therapy. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't have the title yet. It's being written, at, sure. but, um, you know, systemic treatment of, of, of trauma, of complex trauma and how, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to put this in, but I do think therapy and particularly trauma therapy has been colonized. Mm. And, uh, and even though I'm a white woman mm-hmm. writing, uh, I hope to look at it as saying are that a real systemic model mm-hmm. is considering the all the social political variables as yes. well, and how to bring that into treatment and how to bring that into family treatment. So mm-hmm. to me, true systemic is. How do we look at the family and the social political environment in which larger systems? Right. And and so that's what the book is, is how to Mm. really look at complex trauma Mm -hmm. systemically. Great. Great. So that's that's, you know, at least I, I hope I have that book left in me. Yes, yes. Well, it sounds like you're doing so much wonderful work and you've really kind of been on this journey, you know, throughout, you know, and, and all the way back to, like you're saying, kind of the beginning of, you know, the child abuse laws and kind of through this process and, and really kind of figuring it out and, and coming up with your own kind of blueprint and model and, and integrating, it sounds like so much with the, you know, the, the neurological, the, you know, IFS, you know, um, the, the polyvagal. And, and just to kind of uh, circle back to, to the blueprint, you've talked about phase one and phase two. Is that, are there more phases? Are those? But the, the phase, the next phase you just did, as I was sitting here thinking, which is consolidation. Mm. So just how you took the podcast. Yeah. Right. So like my husband says, I do everything in three phases and it's all <laughs> cyclical. It's the same thing. You you created the context by saying how you've known me and even that I knew your mom. And um, uh-huh. so you created the context, asked me some questions, say to where we start. Then we moved into challenging patterns and sort of saying, OK, so where are you at now? What's going mm-hmm. on? What are the challenges? What are you doing? And then you just consolidate it. <laughs> so and that happens in seconds yeah and in minutes and for us it just happened in 50 minutes mm-hmm. um and that so those are the three phases and then consolidation mm-hmm. is then creating the context mm-hmm. so there there's the three phases but it's a cycle so when you consolidate yeah then you're also creating a context for Oh, 
look into more about family. You know, your whole podcast yeah, yeah. is creating a context. Definitely. So then you, and it kind of keeps evolving from there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, you know, I'm just, I, I love what you're doing and I love the, the social justice aspect that you're doing and really kind of expanding into these larger systems and, uh, you know, the, the, the work that you're doing with the gangs and, um, you know, just kind of also integrating a lot of these important pieces, um, the colonization of therapy and uh, systemic racism and oppression and uh, post-slavery and, and all these kind of pieces into this larger systemic thinking and, and your model. Um, I'm really looking forward to the book. It sounds great. So the one thing I would want to say is, uh, you know, in this time, Keith, mm -hmm that we're all living in, yeah. which is pretty difficult and struggling and unknown. Um, I, I would really, and, and I, I would really like to tell your uh, listeners that, that it's, I'm not saying go volunteer to make yourself feel good. I'm saying that because so many of us feel powerless and out of control and disconnected and devalued, mm -hmm. that that and feeling really powerless, like what can I do? I really yeah. want to share that you know a couple hours a week mm -hmm. of of really feeling like you're making a significant social, political, or and psychological and emotional and spiritual difference in one or two lives. Yeah. Um, where people who can't afford the great therapy that all your listeners are doing sure, yet sure. deserve all that great work yes. that I just really want to encourage people that it's, you know, we all, we, we have to be a village right now in yeah. this world. And, um, and giving of even just like you're saying those few hours or so on can be a larger impact rather than right. some people just get so overwhelmed with there's so much and I can't change right. it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I got it. overwhelmed. Of just doing small acts that might build and, and keep that as part of their work. And right. I, I truly believe therapists have a sacred gift. Yeah, definitely. I do. It's a gift. It's an art and it's a gift and it's very sacred and the world needs it right now. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving us this gift of, you know, uh, the work that you're doing and, thank and you. it's great to hear. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure, you know, listeners are going to be really you know, inspired by, by this work. And um, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank, I really appreciate thanks, it. Steve. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to sfiap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback, and if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.